Okay, so we begin this morning. <clears throat> I'll turn to the right page here. Hey, good morning. May the 13th, our lesson number 26 as we get going. We move on to our second beatitude this morning. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We mourn. We're blessed when we're mourned, it says, and we have the promise of being comforted. Once again, we see this, this paradox that we find in the Beatitudes that exists between blessing and some specifically expressed difficulty in our life. And it's rightly termed a paradox. We wouldn't think that one would follow the other. But here one might say, if we look at this, you know, blessed are those who mourn because they'll be comforted. We might say, happy are the sad. You see the paradox in that? Happy are the sad. What gets your attention right off, doesn't it? Most of us, or most of what we know about sorrow and pain and difficulty in our life would involve things like, you know, some sort of deep level of gloom that we're experiencing or some sort of pressure that comes even upon our spirit, you know, where we just seem kind of burdened down. We talk about this deep sense of mourning, and this is what Christ is talking about here. It might include a difficulty that kind of eludes comfort. We don't seem to be able to find a place of comfort in our circumstances, in our situation, and that might, that might rattle on for quite a period of time. It really might. And it brings, often it brings with it a, a reality in our mourning that initiates questions, right? It initiates some sort of a evaluation. We begin looking at our life because of this persistent difficulty. And we begin asking that question, right? Why, Lord? Why? What is your purpose in this? Why does it seem like my prayers don't, get out of, out of the room, you know, why is there no, I think we expect, an immediate comfort? Why? And it, it tells us why, you know, throughout Scripture. Yeah, we, we're people of faith. The just live by faith. The Old Testament and the New Testament tells us time and again. We live by faith. And the Bible is replete with examples about coming to Christ in our difficult times, specifically here, our times of mourning, when our grief is legitimate, our mourning is legitimate, but we don't seem to be able to come to terms with the depth of it. And we don't seem to be able to rationalize, if you will, or even view through the eyes of faith why it has to continue so long. Why can't this stop, Lord? Why can't you provide an answer to this? Make this go away or bring this situation to fruition. And I can only tell you that during those times, our true metal is revealed. And Christ reveals Himself. And in those times, those are the times when we truly become more like Him if... Remember, these Beatitudes are what? They are conditional. The blessings are conditional. We must respond to the truth of God's Word. That is to say, specifically, 
we must meet these difficulties, specifically these times of mourning in our life as God would have us do. So we know that it will stretch our faith. It will take us to a greater place of faith. It will begin to transform us. All the different things that have to transpire in our life in order to make us, you know, make us, you know, continue that process of sanctification and become more like Christ. All those things happen based upon how we respond to what God is doing or allowing in our life. It's a good time to revisit what all Scripture demands of us. And that's simply that we must believe the Scripture. That is our strength. (coughs) I don't know if you've ever been taken to a place in your life before as a result of whatever drastic, mournful circumstance might have come into your life, but it's a place where you literally have nothing to to rely upon but the Word of God. Uh, We don't look uh, at that situation when we're in it (laughs) in a joyful way, but we can certainly look back on it if you've been there, and I'm sure that you have if you've been following Christ for any length of time. We look back on it with great joy because we see the transformation. We see what Christ did during that time. We can go back and we can identify specific things in our life that are reflective of of a definite pruning process in our life a pure a purifying in our life you know a testing that that word talks about you know, it's the metal urgy word that we find in scriptures it talks about testing metal to see what's truly in that metal and that's what happens to us spiritually so we have to be willing to go there in order to experience what can rightly be translated the happiness of God. We made the distinction when we first started this, looking at that word blessed. You know, we think of it, it can be happiness, but it's a true happiness. It's not one that's based upon circumstances. It's based upon the truth of God's word, the reality of His presence within us. So we have to submit to that. We have to trust God during those times and then we begin with the questions why you know why do i have to go through this how do i go through this how long do i have to go through this what are you doing lord to say nothing about you know when when will it start when will it be over but these are realities in our life a quote for you here the faithful child of god is constantly broken over his sinfulness. Now, I find people often who buck at this. They, they get tired of this. They get tired of me talking about it, uh, you know. <laughs> but you can't, you can't avoid this. The faithful child of God is consistently broken over his sin. But don't get the picture that you always have to go around, woe is me, I'm under condemnation. No, we're not under condemnation. We're not bearing a false guilt, but we're constantly aware of sins nipping at us constantly because we know that if we open the door slightly and let it in, we know the potential of that. We know the fallout of that. We've, I might say we've learned that the hard way, most of us, haven't we? So it's a serious matter with us, but not serious to the point where we don't have faith in what God has done and accomplished in that regard. We just, 
We just recognize it as a reality. Peter would say, be sober-minded about these things. Think about them rightly. Don't be lured into the world where we kind of get so caught up in the goodness of God that we forget that there's a battle going on. We don't want to do that. No, there's still great joy. So he says this, and he says, And the longer he lives and the more mature he becomes in the Lord, the harder it is for him to be frivolous. Now, I guess these are the folks who are often accused of just being too serious about life. And I guess you could carry it to a fault. But those are the folks that you usually run to when you need clarity, you know, when you need a a deep prayer because there's something that intuitively tells us, well, this individual is most often always focused upon the things of the Lord. doesn't mean that we can't be that way and, and not be joyful, not be happy. In fact, we're commanded to be that way. We have a lot to be joyful and happy about. But there's always this awareness, this understanding about the presence of sin. He would add, he sees more of God's love and mercy, but he also sees more of his own and the world's sinfulness. So to grow in grace is also to grow in the awareness of sin. Why? Because that's one of the devil's primary tools, is it not? Fits right in with deception, that things aren't really as sinful as they seem. Or this particular sin, really it's, it's a little sin. You know, it's a white lie or whatever you want to call it. And the whole plan is to deceive us and to get us thinking that it's no big deal. We need to be faithful in the small things. We need to be faithful there as well. Well, the world would say in order to be happy, you must have some or all of the following. And I take these right from commentary. I found them to be right on target. Listen, things must always go your way. And what happens if they don't go your way? Well, then you resort, in the worldly sense, you resort to some sort of manipulation, don't you? That's not God's way. Pleasure is the key, right? Because it feeds your desire. It tells you to go for it. Obviously, you want to be happy, then feed your desires. Sounds natural. Well, it is natural in the truest sense of the word. Natural to the point of being apart from spiritual. The need for money, that'll do it, right? Invest your life in acquiring it. That's what the world would tell you. Right? You need entertainment, perhaps. Experience your life literally in another world. Allow various types of entertainment to take you to a place that you'll never be able to go to, a place of notoriety, a place of some sort of experience or exhilaration that maybe you can experience for a moment and then it's gone. It's fleeting. So you have to have more and more and more of that. You know, what do we call them? Thrill junkies, I guess you could say. And that would apply on a number of levels, not just roller coasters. My wife's a roller coaster fiend. She almost killed me at Bush Gardens. I literally had to lie down. I mean, it was bad. My whole world was spinning around. She just laughed. Yeah. I think she's laughing at me, not the roller coaster experience. <laughs> yeah, a boat. A, a bo- yeah, she'd get on a plane, she won't get on a boat. Yeah, I know it. Yeah, well, but it's, it's you know, that's because of the political situation. <laughs> yeah, she don't want to be on TV with a bag over her head. You know, <laughs> some guy, 
standing there. If I'm going to be on TV, I don't want to bag. You know? No, she doesn't. Yeah, we laugh, but she's, she's serious about it. Yeah. You must have fame and praise. People must be coming up to you all the time, telling you how good you are. So you, your work must be then to what? How do you get that? In your work, you work to please others, right? And you get really torqued when they don't appreciate your efforts, right? No, Scripture would, of course, speak against that. And I didn't go so far as to put the scriptural rebuttals, but I'm confident you know them. Self-expression will fill the void. Just be who you are. You just got to be, you know, be in an environment, whether it's work or family, where you can cut loose. You can say what you want to say. You can express yourself as you see fit, even at the expense of others. Well... You might not be as interesting as you think you are. That just might be the case. So that would bring its depression. To say nothing about other areas that involve just simple, you know, broad categories of pain, trouble, various types of disappointments or frustrations, hardships, illness, all of these things. The world would say, do everything you can to avoid that. (coughs) And yet, praise God, we know that with any of these things that come into our life, and we know they will come into our life, right? Christ said it. Paul said it. Pain, trouble, all these different things. And yet, we can experience a continual joy during that time. We can do that. This is the miraculous thing regarding the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. The reality of the presence of God that includes the the comfort and the promises of His Word. All of that we have because of His goodness to us. Even in the midst of these difficulties. Undeniable. And there are a host, a host of confessions, you know, testimonies, witnesses from people about how God provides for them during these times. You know that. And I dare say, if you were so inclined, you could raise your hand this morning and share not one, but a number of such examples in your life. You can go anywhere in the world, and the consensus will be that favorable circumstances and things bring happiness, and that unfavorable circumstances and things bring unhappiness. And that takes us back to this this paradox that we see regarding these Beatitudes. So let's look at them a little, little deeper here, particularly mourning. Let's continue and answer a few questions this morning. What is the meaning of this mourning? Why are the, what are rather the results of mourning and how are we to mourn? It's okay to mourn, but there's some cautions in our mourning. How do we know if we're mourning as Christ commands us to do? How do we know that we're doing that rightly. So that's kind of what we're going to look at this morning in the 30-40 minutes that we have left. So we begin by looking at the word first off here, to mourn in the Greek. It's a word that speaks of literally continual mourning. That's what it's talking about. A continual mourning. And we know from looking at it that mourning can be legitimate and, and normal or it can be abnormal and illegitimate, much like grief uh, itself, or really what I wanted to say was much like guilt. Guilt's the same way. There can be a justifiable guilt that we're experiencing 
which God provides remedy for. And then there can be a guilt that's a false guilt. A guilt that literally we allow to hang over us even though our confession has been effective. We're just being bombarded, you know, I think by maybe even Satan himself to not believe the Word of God, to not trust His forgiveness. You know, you have that. We get so still maybe so hung up over self and over our example, which I'm talking about our, our failing example, that we have trouble forgiving ourselves. When Christ has already forgiven us and His desire is to, to secure us, to, to strengthen us in that knowledge and to allow us to move forward. Because it's Satan's work to keep us in a place of false guilt. It's Satan's work to keep us in a place of false mourning. So we're going to look at that this morning as well. So there is an improper mourning. Okay? It's the sorrow, get this, the sorrow of those who are frustrated in fulfilling evil plans and lust or who have misguided loyalties and affections. Now that will result in an improper mourning. We might simplify it and say, well, it's just people who simply didn't get what they selfishly wanted. And they mourn over that. There are a multitude of worldly examples. Is there anything, and I mean thing in your life right now that if it didn't get it or didn't come to fruition that would throw you into a state of mourning? Or would you not just accept it as oh God's will, I didn't need that anyway. Somebody else needed it or what I mean, is that your attitude? I mean it should be. You just can't be dependent upon things in your life. Proper mourning, what would that be? Well the grief that is rightly expressed, it's a legitimate sorrow. Legitimate types of sorrows that are common to all people. Everybody experiences that. But it's reasonable and it's appropriate. It's reasonable and appropriate. What would determine that? What would make a particular type of mourning reasonable and appropriate? What would you think? Well, object-wise, yes. Mourning, Mourning over a sin. And even that, as we've said would have its limits once forgiveness is realized. How about mourning, while you mention that, what about mourning over the sins of others? You know, there's, There comes a point when you have to, to leave that at least temporarily. We all have family members that we pray for and we mourn when we see them on a sinful pathway because we know what's going to happen. Sometimes I'll, in, in working with people at work and just trying to be, sensitive to how God's got me moving in their life at different areas. I'll, I'll see them just excited over something, happy over something that's transpired in their life. Most often a number of things that's transpired in their life that are very positive. And yet I know they don't have Christ. They're just selfish. You know, they have what they have for the wrong reason. And I know what's going to happen. Do you know what's going to happen eventually? Right. What's going to happen? Those things are not going to fulfill. They might even go away. No, the new house may burn down. There may be some kind of economic difficulty. The relationship, because it's not built upon Christ, is going to go south. It's going to go south. And we grieve. And we know what's coming. How do we know that? Because we know the Word of God. We know what He says. We know what a wrong pursuit of things in this life will lead to. 
And yes, it's our job, if you will, it's our calling and it's our joy to be a light in that darkness for people, to help them see, but what a difficult task. You most often don't get a a listening ear until they're already in the difficulty, right? And now they're desperate for relief. But it's interesting because you can talk about a proper or improper type of mourning, but then there's a third category, which I enjoyed studying about, and it's just a godly mourning. In other words, what does the Bible say about mourning? And the first thing you have to realize is that it has nothing really to do with proper or improper mourning. It's in a whole different realm, okay? Because it's the mourning of the believer only. And this is clear in the language. It's the mourning that only believers can experience because it most always involves mourning over sin, either your sin or the sin of someone else. And it takes us to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 11. Now, I've shared from this, and I'm not going to go back and go through all of the uh, <coughs> various points in these six or seven things that it gives here. I've often presented this material and titled it A True and Valid Repentance. But prior to that, Paul talks to the church at Corinth here about a godly sorrow. That's what he's talking about, a godly sorrow. And he mentions that in verse 9 of chapter 7. He says, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful, or you might say mournful, to the point of repentance. So it's always going to involve that in some fashion. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God. So we can get comfort initially from knowing that God's hand is in this difficulty. You're here for a purpose so that you might not suffer loss in anything. In other words, this is a big deal. You've got to get this out of the way because it will interfere with other things in your life, other blessings in your life, opportunities, so on and so forth. You want to be able to do that. Well, in verse 10 he says, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance. And as believers who are focused upon the Word of God and God's presence and work in our life, again, we don't run from repentance. We don't run from the chastening hand of God. If we truly understand it, we rejoice. We run to Him. We don't run from Him. We thank Him for the correction. And yes, we know that if that's the way we approach Him, that that correction is short-lived and it's, 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 it's less intense because we learned our lesson. And that's the point. And He says we do this without regret. That we do that because it's now understood. It's part of us. We know that it's necessary. And even as it leads to salvation, or properly if I remember correctly, I didn't look too deep at this, but it leads to deliverance. And certainly, salvation of the soul. But he says, the sorrow of the world produces death. What a difficulty for the world to embrace You just want to keep on being sorry because you lost some money in the stock market or you didn't get promoted or this or that or the other. It's pointless. It it just manifests the fact that you've got your sights, you've got your vision on something else besides God. And this is also a warning 
a reminder, if you will, for believers. But then in verse 11, we have this, this really profound verse. He says, For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow, has produced in your life. So again, know and understand and embrace the fact that this is something that is effective in your life spiritually. This is the work of God, this type of sorrowing. Because he speaks of vindication. He speaks of indignation, fear, longing, zeal. Uh, avenging of a wrong. And he says, in everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in this matter. And he's talking about those in Corinth in context who uh, had repented over the way they had treated him, over the way that they had embraced false doctrine, all these different kinds of things that were going on. Paul loved these people and he'd spent time there with them. And... um, He was glad to see that they had responded rightly. You might even say they had mourned properly over their sin and the sins of others and were brought back into, I guess we could say, full fellowship. He was glad that that had happened. And the word that's used here, now this word sorrow is another Greek word, pentheo. He says it's the strongest and most severe of not one, but nine different types of words used in the New Testament for sorrow. So he's saying that these people, once, once they understood their sin, once they saw it clearly, it's just like, it's a picture, oh man, their, their hands, uh, their head is in their hands, they might even be prostrate, they're saying, oh my God, what did I do? What did I say? I was wrong. And they can't make it right fast enough. And you go back and look at those descriptive words there in verse 11, you find words that would indicate that they weren't concerned about people on the outside looking at them and saying, well, he's an elder. I can't believe he's up there confessing. No, they weren't looking at that. They didn't care about that. What they cared about was being right before God. And he will take care of everything else. We don't want to lose this, do we? No. This has everything to do with our own personal humility. So this is what he, he says here. This is the word sorrow that's used. It speaks of the deepest heartfelt type of mourning. It's the grief. It's the same type of uh, word that would be used when there's just this deep grief over the death of a dear loved one. It would be the same type of word. Deep inner, inner agony. Well... Remember, spiritual poverty leads to godly sorrow. Remember, we've talked about a progression that's evident in these beatitudes. So here we're talking out, you know, last week we looked at being poor in spirit. So we're talking out moving from a condition, a condition of being poor in spirit, to action, okay, to, in this case, to literal mourning. <coughs> so that's what we're looking at. A good example of godly sorrow or godly mourning, obviously, we can go to our, our fine brother David from the Old Testament. Let me flip back here to, to Psalm 51, a psalm that we're certainly most familiar with. <coughs> this is David's prayer of repentance and contrition after the whole situation with Bathsheba and so forth. 
as you rightly see noted probably there in your study Bible, listen to the heart of David once again. Be gracious to me, God. Oh, God, dependent upon the grace of God. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. God's motivated by love. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Take them off the chart. (laughs) Take them off the list. Do what you say you'll do in the other Psalms. You'll cast them as far as the east is from the west. You'll, You'll sink them down in the ocean, not to be... Remember it again. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot them out. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Ever before me. (coughs) Against you, you only, have I sinned. And I always give you a little caveat here. He's, He's just acknowledging that all sin is first and foremost against who? All sin. But he's not saying we can't sin against our brother. He's not saying that we can't sin against even our own body, as the Bible declares. He's not saying that. He's just acknowledging that (laughs) all sin is against God first and foremost. He's the one most offended. And done, he says, what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. He's He's confessing. He says, what you said is true. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Talking about her Adamic line. Behold, you desire truth, listen, in the innermost being. You desire, Lord says, Paul, or Paul David says in his prayer, Lord, you desire truth in the innermost being. We're talking about introspection. We're talking about examination. We're talking about, in, in modern terms, of laying it on the line, being honest, melting it down, where the rubber hits the road, all those kinds of things. Just call it what it is. That's the first step. Don't, don't even be so much involved about how you got there and the way your mama treated you or whatever. No, you're responsible for this. That's key. That's key. And in the hidden part, you will make me know wisdom. That's what truth reveals. Do we even know ourselves? Do we? Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Making reference to the the Old Testament effort there, sprinkling the hyssop. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Only God can do that. If He washes you, you're whiter than snow than snow, right? Just like Jude says, He'll present you, what's the word? Blameless. Blameless. Really? Us? I know myself. Blameless? That's the work of God. Praise His name. Make me to hear joy and gladness. David longs to return to that place of joy, that place of happiness. He don't want to stay in the midst of this mourning over his sin. And yet, it's every evidence here. Even though he's saying the right things, he's praying the right things, he ain't there yet. He's coming before God. You might say he's making his confession. He's agreeing with God. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. 
Hide your face from my sins and blot out mine iniquity. Second time he's asked for that. He wants that assurance. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Again, evidence that he ain't quite there yet. Do not cast me away from your presence. Oh, he, he feels that. <coughs> and you should feel that too. I should feel that. When sins separate us from fellowship with God, He don't like being in that place. I don't like being in that place. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Now we know in this day and age, God is not. He's not going to do that. But have you ever been in a place before where you've struggled with sin and you've cried out, God, don't let me destroy my witness for you? Have you ever done that? When your relationship with God is so important and you realize that if I don't get a handle on this, like Paul said, I'm going to be put on a shelf somewhere. And you just plug in the thing. You can call it any kind of sin that you want. And you must see that for what it is. It is the devil's work to rob you and the church of any effectiveness you might have because of your struggle with sin. And then I would ask you, what do you have left in your life as a believer? If you cannot effectively serve God, we don't want to go there. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. He got removed from what was truly important. We can go back and look at the life of David and discover that he wasn't where he was supposed to be. It begins by saying when the kings were out on the battlefield, he was found back at the palace and that's all Satan needed. He needed an open door and there's David on the top of his house looking around. Oh, there's a woman taking a bath. He didn't go out there looking for that. And then here goes the whole scenario. He wasn't where he was supposed to be doing the things that he was supposed to. To do, and I would say the greater responsibility you have, the greater responsibility you have, and I don't just mean in the church as a recognized leader or whatever, but maybe even in the life of someone. Just think about your responsibilities. You're standing with your own family. You can really, really do a number on your credibility and on your ability to be used of God in that realm. We don't want to do that. We don't want to do that. Well, this is what the Word says. We could go on and look at it, but I want to get going. I want to get going and see if I can, can finish up here. But he speaks to us from Psalm 51. The point being that David had to go through this process of mourning. And we could go and look further. This really dawned on me on the way here today because David responds. He responds to the death of two children, Right? He responds to the death of the child as a result of his <clears throat> union with Bathsheba, right? And then later he responds to the death of another child, Absalom. He responded to the death of the child here in such a manner. The scriptures say, what is it, chapter 11 there, Second Samuel? The scriptures say that the servants thought he's going to kill himself, okay? I mean, he's just... He's just tore up over this. He won't eat. He won't take a bath. He won't change his clothes. He's just weeping and wailing. They didn't know. They thought he was going to kill himself. But then after it became clear that the child had died, you know, the Lord told him the child was going to die. He said, your sin's been purged, but this child's going to die. And he said, the sword will never depart from your house. Because 
Man, you're talking about the anointed leader of God's people. Okay? In firearms, we say aim small, miss small. In the spiritual world, we can say sin big, reap big. (laughs) Okay? And this is what happened. He responded to the death of the child by getting up and washing his face, getting something to eat, and the servants were shocked. And what did he say? And I'm paraphrasing, of course, but you know the story. He said, look, I thought I might be able to change God's mind, but he said, I can't, he can't come to me talking about the child, but he said, I'll go to him one day. I'll go to him one day. I find that just absolutely amazing in light of what David had gone through. He still believed the God of redemption, the God of forgiveness, the God of comfort. A just God. And he understood that he's getting what he deserved. Well, probably understood that he wasn't getting what he deserved, but he was getting what God had determined for him to get. Compare that later on with Absalom, who turned against his father, led a revolt, a rebellion, a rebel, drove the anointed leader of God, the anointed king of God, out of his place, out of the country, and then was later himself killed. And David cries out, O Absalom, Absalom, my son. And he continues to mourn Absalom throughout his life. And we might even add, even to a point of fault, you know, he couldn't change it. He couldn't change what had happened. He had great hope over the child because he had one child, quite frankly, who died under the grace of God, and he had one who died as a rebe- in rebellion. That's what he had. And it serves to remind us about what's truly important, what truly deserves our prayer time, our, our knee time, our study time, our pleading before God, our mourning before God, particularly for those who do not know Him. And yet, we're encouraged by Scripture to balance this in our life, to continue to rejoice in the goodness about what God has done, both for us and for the potential of what can happen in the lives of others according to the will of God. So we're back to the question of do we believe this? Where do we find our hope? Where do we find our strength, the strength to do this? Where is it found? It's found in our faith. It's found in our spirit itself being bolstered by the Word of God. We have so much to be thankful for. So much. Job said in Job 42, 5 and 6, he said, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear. I've heard of you. You know, I've experienced you. I've, you know, taken some things in intellectually. Not to say Job wasn't true, he was, but he says now with this particular experience, now my eye sees you. Okay, therefore I retract and repent in dust and ashes. And as I said, it almost always involves some type of repentance. But when he says my eyes, I found out that's the Hebrew word raha. And it means to discern or to perceive in a manner to understand something. Not just to see it and say, yeah, that was there, I saw it. But no, I I get it. I understand it. It's experiential for me. It's now part of who I am. That's the effect that the Word and the presence of God is to have on our lives in whatever realm. That's what it says. Isaiah 66, 2. 
For my hand made all things, thus all things come into being, declares the Lord. But listen, but to this one I will look. This is the one, as we continue, and I'll finish the scripture, this is the one that gets the attention of God, so to speak. To him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. There it is. And you want God's attention? You want to see his hand in a circumstance, particularly, specifically, a circumstance of intense mourning in our life, then you approach Him humbly, reverently, through His Word. He'll open up His will and He'll provide the comfort that we need. So this is what we must understand. Another quote for you. Happiness or blessedness does not come in the mourning itself. Happiness comes with what God does in response to it, with the forgiveness that such mourning brings. God, godly mourning brings godly forgiveness, which brings God's happiness. Mourning is not merely a psychological or emotional experience that makes people feel better. It's a, it's a communion with the living, loving God who responds to the mourner with an objective reality, the reality of divine forgiveness. This is what we really want when we're talking about our own mourning. And when we're mourning for the sake of others, the sin of others, praying for the power of God in their life, it's the same word that we rely on that gets us over the hump, that keeps a smile on our face, that allows us to be encouraged and strengthened with confidence as we go through this life. In chapter 4 of James, he tells us to draw near to God, and in response, God will draw near to you. Okay? But he adds, cleanse your hearts, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be And here it is, be miserable and mourn and weep, and let your laughter be turned into mourning, and your joy into gloom. Now, he's saying this because he knows what follows. Verse 10 of chapter 4 says, Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. Bring yourself before Him in humility and He will exalt you. I love what one translation says. He will lift you up. He'll do that. And that's what we want. We want to be lifted up. We want to be lifted out. And God will do that in His own timing. He'll do that for His own purposes. And it will be genuine. It will not be something based on circumstances. It will be something that's reflective of the work of God and His Spirit in our life. We who mourn, or we are to mourn, but we're not to be engulfed or lost in despair. We don't need to go there. Even the person who has been severely disciplined by the church should be forgiven, should be comforted, should be loved on, and Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, lest somehow such a one be overwhelmed by what? By excessive sorrow. That's not the purpose of it. The purpose of sinful, uh, to confrontation of sin is to lead a person to regret, to mourning, genuine mourning, like we saw, like, he t- like he's going to talk about later in chapter 7. That kind of sorrow is beneficial. It's a godly sorrow. 
but not to stay there so as to give them their just desserts and all that. We want them to repent. We want them to be restored. And we're reminded that's always, always the purpose of church discipline. Always. So we're even cautioning the Word of God about not letting sorrow take a person to a point of a negative despair, a wrongful type of despair. So what are the results of mourning? Well, he says plainly, I want to try to finish this, they shall be comforted. Blessed are they who mourn. And we can already establish they're mourning correctly. They're mourning, you might say, with a godly sorrow. They shall be comforted. They is a particular word. It says it's an emphatic pronoun. It indicates that only those who mourn over sin will be comforted. There's a connection, connection there. All right? And of course, this familiar word comforted here is that from that Greek word <coughs> parakaleo. We know about paraclete, you know, from the, the Holy Spirit, one who comes alongside. It's that same derivative there. It's the noun form uh, of what you see in John chapter 14 that I just described, which is often referred to as the helper or the comforter. And we have to remember that <coughs> Jesus was the first comforter, right? That's what he came for, in part. You know, to comfort us, to comfort us even, as in to relieve us, of course, of our sin. But the Holy Spirit is the second comforter, and He's going to be with us, and He's going to stay with us, and He's going to provide. And He's given us other things. He's given us the Word of God. He's given us the fellowship of the church. He's given us, I trust, close relationships even within that fellowship of the church. And he's given us God's faithfulness in our times of uh, in our life when we have responded to Him rightly and He's proven Himself to us. In other words, we've got a track record of you know, following Him, uh, being faithful to Him, even in times of difficulty, and we've seen Him remain faithful. That, that encourages us. That encourages us. Well, I think I can give me just, can I have five more minutes? And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death. Of course, from Revelation 21, there will no longer be any mourning, the Scriptures say. There won't be any crying. There won't be any pain. He says these are the first things that were necessary, but they have passed away. God's going to do away with all of this one day. You believe that? He's going to do away with all of it. Not in this life, but in the life to come. Now, I mention that because this is His promise. There's coming a day, as the song used to say. We don't sing that song here. What a day that will be. And it will be a day of change. It will be a day of culmination. It will be a day of fulfilling. And it will all be because of the work of Christ. We'll participate in it because of our faithfulness, because of our belief in His Word. Christ stood in Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's his desire. And that reference there, the specific connotation, is rest from your sin. It's forgiveness for your sin. That is the context in that verse. Not talking about just the burdens of life and so forth. He provides rest. And this is first and foremost. This is rest for those who are weary and heavy laden in sin. How are we to mourn? We're to eliminate hindrances. I just want to run through these. These are practical and I'll be done. 
We're to study, well, no, let me back up. We're to eliminate hindrances. And I'm going to list them. If you want to jot them down, the love of sin. Oh, really? Yeah, well, write it down. The love of sin. Despair. And I'm talking about excessive, wrongful, sinful despair. Not that which is normal and temporary. Conceit. We don't have anything to laud. Presumption. Procrastination. These are things that are hindrances to us specifically regarding our mourning. Secondly, we are to study God's Word. The first one was eliminate hindrances. I gave them to you. Now, we are to study the Word of God. I would suggest you begin with Psalm 118 to be taken back to just the exhilarating nature of the Word of God. And then go to John. It'll build your faith. It'll build your confidence. And thirdly, we are to pray. This is not rocket science. These are, these are common things, but they're absolutely necessary. And then in, in our prayer, ask God to give you a contrite heart. Don't let mourning rob you of His presence. Let it take you into His presence. Let Him show you rightfully how to mourn, literally. Mourn rightfully. And then you'll be mourning for the right length of time. You'll be able to come out of that. Run to the throne of grace. Protect your time with Him because that's when you're going to find understanding. That's where you're going to find relief and direction. That's where you're going to find it. Very practical. And then lastly, the question, how do we know if we're mourning as Christ commands? And I'll end with this. Are you sensitive to sin in your life? Are you tolerating any type of sin in your life? If you are... Again, call it what it is. Get rid of it. What else are you sensitive to? It may expose your pride. You don't like people talking about you? Comes with the territory, right? You don't like people rejecting you, leaving you out because you're a Christian? Comes with the territory. We'll finish up our study in 1 John at the end of this month in community group, and that's what we're going to talk about. It's one of the proofs that you're a Christian. You get persecuted. All right? We're going to talk about it. What else are you sensitive to? Are you mourning sin or mourning sin's consequences? Two different things. <coughs> Do you grieve for the sins of fellow believers? That is a right kind of mourning. And do you have a proper sense of God's forgiveness? If you do, it will allow you to move on to experience the mourning for sure. <coughs> but to do it rightly, to do it in a godly manner, God will reveal His heart. He'll reveal His strength. He'll give direction. And you can hear His voice and not fall into sin even over our mourning. Lord, thank You.